Amen. And good morning, Gateway family. It's great to see you all this morning. Find the letter of James in your copy of God's Word. We're continuing through James chapter 1. In our first 17 verses so far, we've seen a lot about the reality of living in a tough and a fallen world. We looked at the reality of trials, how trials will come. We certainly will face them. But in the midst of the trials, we can have peace and contentment. We can have peace and contentment in the hardships of life, knowing that God is going to take those not good things and use them to bring good to us, particularly to strengthen our faith. And he will give us the wisdom we need to walk through those trials. After giving us that teaching, James then gives us an example of one type of trial. That's a trial of money, either poverty or abundance, how both those are trials that we face. And in those trials, God uses those to grow our faith, to help us live for eternity, not for the things of the world. After turning from trials, James moves on to the topic of temptations. It shows us the reality of temptations and our own sin struggles in this broken world. And we saw that those temptations do not come from God, but they come from our own desires within us. But just as James doesn't just tell us there's trials and deal with it, he gives us hope. With temptations, we saw he gives us hope as well. Particularly the hope that we don't have to fall to them, that God gives us the victory, that God gives us the strength we need to walk through those temptations, to walk with him. And then bringing this all together... James is showing us the goodness of God. He showed us the goodness of God and the grace of God and bringing good out of trials. The goodness of God, the grace of God, and giving us victory in the temptation. Then he pulls that all together in what CJ preached for us so beautifully last week, telling us that every good and perfect gift is from above. And just reminding us that throughout the hardships of life, we see the goodness of God, the blessings of God over and over and over. Those blessings flow out of God's character. Well, now this morning, as we come to James chapter 1, verse 18, James is going to give us an example of the goodness of God. Just like he did in his teachings on trials, he tells us about trials and teaches us about them, then gives us an example of the trial of finances. Same thing here. He's been talking about the goodness of God. Now he's going to give us an example of the goodness of God. As we read our text this morning, look for what he's going to highlight. What is the greatest example of God's goodness? What is the greatest gift that God has given to us? And you probably already know the answer, right? If you've been around church a while, this is an answer you probably know. What is the greatest gift God has given to us? But notice how James describes it. Because I'm convinced that what James is doing here is trying to reawaken our heart all and wonder at this gift God has given to us. Because in my heart and your hearts, we have a tendency to lose the wonder of what God and his grace has done for us. But secondly, James is not just showing us the gift that we have received. He's going to show us that we have a responsibility with it. This grace gift that God gives to us doesn't just stop with us, but we have a responsibility. So as we read, what is the greatest gift God has given to us? The biggest demonstration of his goodness. And then what is our responsibility with it? So as we come to James chapter 1, verse 18, can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? I'll be reading out the English Standard Version. If you're a visitor, we also have the words on the screen for you. James chapter 1, verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that... We should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for your word. God, your word is living and active. And Lord, we're thankful for your goodness to us and giving us the gift of your word, Lord, that we are a people who can open your word and read your words to us. And we have copies on our phones and on our bookshelves at home that we can look it up online. That Lord, everywhere we turn, we can find your word. And God, I pray we wouldn't take that lightly this morning, that we get to together as a body of believers who love you, open up your word and see what the Lord has said to us. Or may we treasure this opportunity and may you speak to us. May your Holy Spirit come and make your word come alive to us. And even this this short verse, may much truth come to each one of our hearts. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
So in James chapter 118, you see both a gift and a responsibility. The gift is obviously our salvation, what God has done for us in Christ. That God has given us the greatest display of goodness, the greatest display of gift that's possible, of his grace, and that is saving us, rescuing us from our sins, giving us new life in Christ. But that gift comes with a responsibility, and that is a responsibility to not sit on it, once we get it, but to give it to others as well, to share it to others as well. So this morning I want to bring that together with our main idea as a question for the morning. This is what I want us to think about from this verse, simply this. Does the wonder of the gift of our salvation lead us to share that hope with others? Does the wonder of the gift of salvation that you and I have received if we are in Christ, does the wonder of that gift lead us and motivate us and drive us to take that hope to others? Friends, the reality is it's easy for us to lose the wonder of it. We get very cold and calloused to the fact that, oh yeah, I'm a child of God, I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and our hearts can grow dull to the wonder of what God and his kindness has given to us. And what he's given to us is beyond amazing, and James is going to turn our hearts back to look with awe and wonder at God's grace in our lives. But friends, this amazing re- receipt of grace in our lives comes with a responsibility, not to be selfish with it, not to stop with it, but to make it known to others as well. And again, the reality in our lives, friends, we can grow very cold and we can grow very unactive in sharing Christ with others. So James, through a a beautiful image here, is going to turn our hearts as well to see the responsibility we have to share this grace gift of God with others. Again, what you see this morning, this question for our own lives, does the wonder of the gift of our salvation lead us to share that hope with others? Now, let's look at the context here and make sure we see that James is still talking about God's gifts to us. Remember from last week, CJ told us a gift is anything that produces a beneficial effect. Gift is anything that's beneficial to us in this. And here is the benefit that comes from God's grace to us, that flows out of his character to us, his people. Look at how verses 17 and 18 flow together. So go back up one verse to verse 17. Let's look at this whole paragraph together. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James is building for us here an example of the greatest display of every good gift and every perfect gift. The greatest gift that has come down from the Father of lights. And that gift, as I mentioned a minute ago, is our salvation. Where do we see that? Go back to the beginning of verse 18. It says, of his own will, he brought us forth. Now, brought us forth is a childbearing image. That God has brought us forth. He has given birth to us. He's given us new life in Christ. And in the New Testament, they take this image of being brought forth, and it means to have spiritual life. It means to have new life in Jesus. Think back to more than two years ago. I know it's been a while. It's been around Gateway. When we worked through the Gospel of John and how we saw the same members there. John chapter 3, verse 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he begins to talk to Jesus. And Jesus answers Nicodemus with this. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again... Now, it's a different word here, but it's the same idea as being brought forth. It's the same image here. Unless one is born again or one is brought forth, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus obviously is confused by this and says to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answers, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, there's your physical birth, and the spirit, there's your spiritual birth. What James is talking about here, being brought forth. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Of God, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So we go back now to James chapter 1, verse 18. It's the same imagery here that Jesus uses of being born again. Of his own will, he brought us forth. We are now born again. This is an image of total change. This is not an image of God taking us and fixing a few things that are broken in our lives. 
this image of God starting over something totally new, of total transformation, of total renewal, of total change in our nature. If you remember back again several years ago to the Gospel of John, we said it's receiving a radical transformation from above. That this new life in Christ is receiving a radical transformation from above. And think about this. Think about how radical it is. God changes our status before him. God changes our status. In a display of his grace, he looks upon us as sinners who've offended him and broken his law. And he forgives us of all of our sins. Because when Christ died, he put all of our sins onto Christ. The penalty's been paid. His holiness and his justice have been satisfied. And he will never, ever, ever hold those sins against us again. He changes our status so we're not guilty before him. He gives that to us as a good gift, but he doesn't stop there. He not only forgives us of our sin, he takes all of Christ's righteousness and then puts it on us. So when the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And we're able to approach his throne confidently because he doesn't just see us, oh look, there he comes messed up again. He sees us covered with the righteousness of Christ. And that means our standing before him is secure. And what a gift he gives to us. But even furthermore, he gives us the gift of, because we can approach him, of giving us a deep, abiding relationship with him. He adopts us as his children. He gives us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It is a total transformation of how he views us and this display of this perfect and good gift of his grace of our salvation. And friends, it gets even better. Because not only does he change our status before him, he changes our nature as well. He doesn't change how he sees us. He actually begins to transform us. He gives us bringing us forth, being born again, this radical transformation. He begins to actually change who we are in this. I love the way the prophet Ezekiel describes what God does. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. Look it up on the screen here. God says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Friends, this amazing gift that God has given to us is not just a legal standing before him. He actually changes our nature. He begins to put into our heart desires we've never had before. Desires to love him. Desires to read and study his word. Desires to obey. Desires to run back to him. Even when we've fallen in our sin, but to run back to him, he puts these new desires, this new nature inside us. He takes out the old and puts in the new. That's what James is telling us here in verse 18 of his own will. He brought us forth. He gave us a total radical transformation, not just of our standing before him, but of our very nature as he transforms who we are in Christ. We wrap all that up in that simple term. He gives us salvation. It's astounding that he has given that to us. But to make us realize how astounding it is, James brings out how undeserving we are of this grace gift of God. Notice the very first phrase here of verse 18 back in James 1. Of his own will, he brought us forth. There's this phrase, of his own will. In the Greek, is actually only one word. And it's the first word in the sentence, <clears throat> which is given the place of emphasis. And it's in the emphatic sense here. So if you were translating this today, perhaps if you were texting this to someone, you put it in all caps. Like this is the emphasis James is going to make sure you don't miss. By God's own will... He let us be born again. By God's own will, he gave us a radical transformation. By God's own will, he has chosen to do these things for us. In the Greek, it is what's called a causal participle. That just means it's showing us the reason for something. The reason we believe, the reason we've been born again, the reason that we have been brought forth, the reason we've received a radical transformation is not because we're awesome. It's not because we're good. It's not because we've got it all pulled together. It's simply because, as it says here, of his own will. 
You could literally translate that because he was willing. That means God looked at us in the mess of our sins. God looked at us with all of our filth, the way we've shaken our fist at God and chosen our way instead of his. God looks at us in our rebellion against him. And he could have just left us there. He could have judged us. He could have condemned us. He would have been good and right and fair and just to do all that. But God simply, by his own will, because he was willing for his own pleasure, for his own purposes, decided to save us from that. To take, save us from the penalty of sin by changing our status before him. To save us from the power of sin by changing our nature. He takes us, his enemies, and adopts us and makes us his friends. He takes us sinners who've offended him and he makes us into saints before him. We are so undeserving of it. When we think back to when we studied Ephesians last year, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, where it describes the same idea. Even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And notice the next phrase, in love. Tie this back to what James is saying. This good and perfect gift, the greatest display of the love of God is what he's done for us in taking undeserving wretches like me and like you and changing our status and changing our nature and giving us new life in him. Ephesians 1, 4, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to, here it is again, the purpose of his will because he was willing, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Out of his goodness, out of his love, this overflow of his character, he gives us the best gift ever, the exact opposite of what we deserve. And friends, that should stir our hearts with wonder and with praise to glorify him for what he has done to us who are so undeserving. That really begs two questions of us as we think about this. And the first question this begs of us is how did this gift come to us? How did God take us from being sinners to being saints? How did God take us from being his enemies and adopt us to seat us at his table, to give us, to make us his children, to give us every spiritual blessing? Well, God is sovereign. God can do whatever God wants to do, but he's chosen to bring to you and to me this message in a particular way. Look back at verse 18 in James 1. Of his own will, he brought us forth by, by here is indicating means or method, the method of which he's going to do this, by the word of truth. Well, what does this mean? It literally means the word that is true. What is he talking about here? Well, the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, because it defines it for us. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, which is the what? What's the next word? The gospel. So what is James talking about here? He's talking about the gospel. The word of truth is the gospel of your salvation. When you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, what is that gospel message? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 3 and 4 is a beautiful, short, concise summary of this gospel message. Gospel means good news. Here's the good news of God's gift to us. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Friends, this is the good and perfect gift that God gives to us. The greatest gift he could give to us is Christ died for our sins so that our sin gets put on him, Christ's righteousness gets put on us. We have our status changed, we have our nature changed, and God adopts us and gives us all these things in Christ. Let's go back to verse 3 because there's something I don't want you to miss in this. Here's what Paul says. I delivered to you what's of first importance. This gospel message goes forth as God's people deliver it to others. Friends, Paul was so overwhelmed with a sense of wonder that God would save him from all of his mess and his sins and his rebellion and his persecution of the church. And we could go on and on, just like his life is full of sin like Howard's is. 
And he is so overwhelmed by God's grace, he now takes it to other people. Friends, at some point in your life, if you're a follower of Christ, someone who is in awe of God's grace delivered to you this message. Who did that for you? Who was the person who was so in awe of the fact that Christ had delivered them from their sins that they shared that hope with you? Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a teacher of vacation Bible school. Maybe it was a friend or a co-worker or a missionary or a stranger who left a Bible or a tract out for you. But think back to your own life, friend. Who was it who delivered to you which was of first importance? Because someone took the word of truth and gave you a copy of it or talked to you about it and challenged you to believe it. And God worked through them doing that to forever change your heart, to forever transform you. Think of the goodness of God to you in that. He didn't have to send that person or persons into your life. He didn't have to put that Bible where you found it. This was the goodness of God to you where he brought forth new nature in you by the word of truth. But friends, that raises a question, a second question for us. Not just who, who brought this word of truth to us, but what is our responsibility now to bring it to others? What is our responsibility to take this message to others? Because we have the same responsibility that whoever had who brought it to you. Go back to verse 18. Look at how James brings out our responsibility now who have received this gift to pass this gift to others. It says in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that, notice so that, so that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. He brings us forth by word of truth so that, this is one of the reasons he's done. There's many reasons that God does what he does. Ultimately, it's his glory. But one of these reasons of why he particularly has saved each one of us who are in Christ is so that we should be. But you want to know God's will? He's going to tell us. We get so hung up sometimes on what's God's will for my life? What's God's will for this? Well, this is one of these times he's told us very plainly what God's will is, that we are to be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, that may sound like a strange way to describe it. What does it mean that we are first fruits? Well, this is an Old Testament imagery that's given new meaning in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, once you see what it meant, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 4. In Deuteronomy 18, it says, The first fruits of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep, you shall give him. The first fruits were offerings. When you had a harvest of grain, the first fruits were literally the first harvest of grain that you gave back to God as this offering. The first wine you collected, you took that and you gave it back to God. The first oil you made, you gave back to God. The first sheep shearings that you had of their wool, you gave back to God. The first fruits were literally the first harvest you had, the first things you had received that you gave as a sacrifice to God with the expectation that God in his goodness would provide and that more was coming. You gave the very first of what you had back to God with the expectation that he was going to do more. You didn't keep it for yourself. You didn't save it for yourself for more security. You gave it to God trusting him to provide. Now, the New Testament takes this idea and applies it not to the offerings, but to ourselves as followers of Christ. Romans chapter 16, verse 5. Notice this. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. He was the first convert. Now, this is where our translations don't do justice to us, because the, the Greek word is actually he was the first fruit to Christ in Asia. Exact same word in James 1.18. The translators just try to clean it up to help us understand here. But he was literally the first fruit to Christ in Asia. What is Paul saying? This guy, if I even pronounce his name right, Epinetus, was the first one who believed. But Paul had the hope that God would bring many more to faith in Christ after him. 
as he took the gospel message he had received, as he experienced the goodness of God and he shared it with others, Paul was convinced that many others would follow Christ as well. We see the same thing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 as well. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the what? What he chose you as? The first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. We're to rejoice that God has saved us and rescued us, but we're not to stop there. We're to take the good gift of God that he's given us and we're to share that with other people as well. And perhaps the text in the New Testament that makes us the clearest of all is 2 Corinthians 5. I know we've looked at this text before, but it's one that we need to meditate on and dwell on and think about over and over. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Notice how this pulls together all that James is saying in a much expanded fashion here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There it is, is the image of that, being brought forth, being born again. We're new. God's not taking something and fixing it. He's starting over with us. We are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is a new spiritual life we have from God. Now, verse 18, notice how he goes on. All this is from God. Different way of saying the same thing that James is saying. By his own will, he brought us forth. All this comes from God. We can't make God do this. God in his grace does this. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now, friends, so often we put a period there in our thinking and stop right there. We think about what God has done to us and how amazing it is, but we stop there. But we cannot stop there, friends. Notice he goes on. This is through Christ, God's reconciled us to himself, and he's given to who? What's the next word? Us. He's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Notice how linked this is here. He reconciles us and then gives us the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of pointing others to Christ as well. Verse 19, he carries on and builds on it. That is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So again, stop there. God is the one sovereign over salvation. God has to do the work. You and I cannot change someone's heart. God can. But then notice this, the next line, he goes on. And entrusting to who? To who? Us. He's entrusted to us. Friends, this is sobering. The sovereign God who could redeem humanity any way he wants to has entrusted to his first fruits, to his believers, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, in the very next verse, Paul continues, Therefore, here's the conclusion, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through who? Through us. Therefore, look, we cannot be silent, friends. He says, we implore you. Notice the urgency here. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. God takes the first fruits and works through them as his mouthpieces so that others begin to follow as well. Now, pull that together and come back to James chapter 1, verse 18, and look at what James is doing for us here. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Friends, do you realize the hope that would have given to James's original readers? Think back to what we learned about them. He's writing to Jewish Christians who were forced away from Jerusalem because of persecution. Life is hard. They're far from home. They've lost everything. They've lost their jobs. They've lost their families. They've lost their money. And they are starting over from scratch with nothing in places where they're hated by the Jews and they're hated by the Gentiles. It seems hopeless for them. They're small in number. And James says to them, you are first fruits. God has set you apart. And there's going to be so many others come to faith in Christ if you will be faithful to be the mouthpiece for God and be faithful to be his ambassadors. Think of the hope that gives these believers who are small in number in trials. 
And friends, if you know church history, the wonder of the salvation that the early church experienced led them to be bold in the midst of persecution, and the church exploded, not in a bad way, in a good way. The church exploded with growth, and, the, and God established his kingdom. He established his gospels. He established his church in the midst of awful circumstances and awful difficulties because people who were in awe of his gospel message realized they were a kind of first fruits and took that message to others. Friends, what about for you and for me? If you have received the message of grace, if you've believed in the goodness of God and experienced it, are we now taking that to others? Are we living out God's will to be first fruits? Are we taking this hope we have and sharing it to others? Friends, the question back at the beginning, does the wonder of the gift of our salvation lead us to share that hope with others? And friends, too often in my life, and when, as I talk to you guys, I think in a lot of our lives, we struggle to take the gospel like we should to non-believers. Why, friends? Why do we struggle to live out God's will of being first fruits? Why do we struggle to make Christ known? I've been really reflecting on that one this week. And I want to give you seven possible reasons why we are not faithful to this. Now, this is far from an exhaustive list. There may be other reasons, but I want to give you some things to chew on to see if any of these are in your life, like some of them are in my life, of why we're more hesitant to share the gospel than we should be, why we're not living as God's will here of being first fruits. And again, it may be different for you, but I want you this week, friends, to punish us going, Lord, am I being faithful to live as first fruits, to seek to make you known to other people? If not, why, Lord, show me what are the obstacles to me fulfilling your clear will for my life? Here's seven possible reasons why we do not take the gospel to others. Number one, we've lost confidence in the power of the gospel. We've lost confidence in the power of the gospel. We look at the world around us. We look at our neighbors, our friends, family members, co-workers, whoever, and we think, oh, they'll never believe. Or we think that gap, that chasm is so big, they're not going to cross it. Friends, there's no chasm so big that God can't draw someone across that. God's grace is bigger. The hardest hardened criminal can come to faith in Christ. The hardened atheist, you know, can come to faith in Christ. The gospel is God's power. Romans 1.16 tells us that we're not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. And the God who speaks the world into being can take the hardest person who's shaking their fist at God and draw them to himself. Friends, I fear sometimes we've lost confidence in the gospel. Number two, perhaps we're not living as first fruits like we should, but simply because we don't know many non-believers. Friends, it's easy to get trapped in our bubble of our Christian friends or our Christian co-workers or our family groups or whatever, and that's great to have that fellowship, and it's great to grow in that fellowship, but it's easy for us to get in our Christian bubbles where we really don't have deep relationships. Yes, we may have acquaintances, but do we have deep friendships with non-believers to where the love of Christ can go forth, where we can see the, they can see the hope we have in Christ and we can speak about him. So perhaps we don't know many who are non-believers. Number three, it's one of the big ones in my life, friends. We fear what other people think. We fear what other people think. This is a sin. This is not just a preference. This is a sin that we call people-pleasing. People-pleasing is where we're more worried about what other people think than what God thinks. In the Bible, that's idolatry, that's sin. And for a lot of our lives, we struggle with trying to please people more than we please God. And friends, it's very easy for us to keep silent when we know we need to speak because we're so worried, will they still like me? Oh, they're going to think I'm judging or whatever. And we stay silent. It makes us timid when God's called us to go in boldness and in love, speak the gospel. Number four, perhaps one reason why we do not share Christ like we should is we're not spending time with God ourselves. We're not spending time with God ourselves. Friends, effective evangelism of sharing Christ flows out of an overflow of abiding with God and intimacy with God. Friends, if we're not in the Word, we're going to quickly look like the world and not be transformed. If we're not praying, our hearts desires are not going to be being conformed to what God wants them to be. And perhaps one reason why we're not being faithful to God's will to make Him known is we're not spending time with Him where we're being transformed alone in His 
presence. Number five is a possibility. We're caught up in selfish desires. We're caught up in living for ourselves. Think back to a few weeks ago when we looked at verse 15 of James 1. It talks about the desires in our heart when they're conceived, give birth to sin. And friends, if we're not careful, there's so often that we get living for our dreams and wanting our power and our way and our money and our dreams to be realized. And we completely miss that we are here for a short season to make Christ known. These lives are not about us and our power and our fame and our wealth, but our lives are about making Christ known. Number six, perhaps we're sidelined by our own sin. Perhaps we're sidelined by our own sin. If you remember back to verse 15, desire when it's conceived, give birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. Because I'm convinced one reason why Satan tempts Christians so much and why he lures us with our own desires is because he wants to sideline us from making Christ known. He wants to sideline us from getting into each other's lives as brothers and sisters and speaking the truth in love. He wants to sideline us from seeking to glorify God, and so he tempts us so that we get lost in our sins and quit living for Christ. And then the last one, perhaps, that summarizes them all, We've lost the wonder of our own salvation. We've lost the wonder of our own salvation. Friends, if we understand how wretched we are and God's grace that is poured out to us and we realize the hope and the joy and the peace we have because of what Christ did for us that we can never do for ourselves, how can we stay silent when around us are friends and coworkers and perhaps even family members who are lost with no hope, with no joy, with no peace, far from God, and we have the hope and the joy and the peace And we stay silent in that. I fear we've lost the wonder of our own salvation. And friends, for you, it may not be any of those. It may be something totally different. But I ask you this week, let's ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and to show us what are the obstacles to us living for Him and making Christ known. Friend, does the wonder of the gift of our salvation lead us to share that hope with others? Friends, my prayer for myself and for you this week is twofold. That God would reawaken in us a sense of awe and wonder and what he's done for us. That God will remove the coldness of our hearts that makes us feel so cold and just, these are just theological truths we have from when we miss the wonder of God's goodness to us. I pray this week in my heart and your heart, he takes us deeper in awe and wonder of what he's done. But then secondly, that God will reburden our hearts with the responsibility we have, but not just the responsibility, with the joy that we have to get to be his mouthpieces and to make him known. Now, before we stand and sing, I want to ask our musicians to come on and to begin to play. And I want to give you a minute where you're sitting to think through those things and to pray about those things. Again, I want us, before I pray on our behalf, I want you to take a minute and pray to the Lord. And would you, if, you are, if your heart is full of awe and wonder at what God has done for you today, just thank Him for that and keep dwelling on that and let that heart affection grow. But friends, if this morning, if you find that your heart affections to the Lord are cold and your heart's not beating with awe and wonder at what God has done, would you take a minute and just say, God, stir my heart afresh, recapture my vision of your glory and your goodness to me. And the second of all, as you're praying, would you pray and say, God, am I being faithful by your grace to make you known to others? As you're sitting there, just if you feel like you're falling short in that, the Holy Spirit convicts you of that, just ask him for forgiveness. That's the beauty of God's goodness. He doesn't convict us to leave us broken and hiding in a corner. He convicts us so that he grows us because he loves us so, friends. So we confess it, knowing he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us. Would you take just a minute then and pray and say, God, give me grace this week. Burden my heart this week to make you known. And perhaps he's going to put on your heart someone in particular. He wants you to either re-engage in prayer or start praying for it for the first time, that they would come to faith in Christ. Would you commit that person to the Lord? And would you begin to ask God, Lord, how do you want to use me to make you known? Take a minute and let's pray those things.
Father God, you are so very good to us. Lord, I'm thankful that for myself and these precious brothers and sisters, God, that you have given us not just forgiveness, not just righteousness, not just new life in you. You've changed our nature. You've total, you're totally transforming us. And God, I pray this week in my heart and the heart of these brothers and sisters that, God, this week we would sense the awe and wonder of your grace, the grace upon grace that you have poured and you will continue to keep pouring out into our lives. And I pray it would lead us to a place of joy that's not based on our circumstances, a place of thankfulness not based on what's happening around us, but knowing that we are your children. Reawaken our hearts, Lord, to awe and wonder at who you are and what you have done. Lord, as well, would you reburden our hearts, Lord? Can we confess it is so easy to go through our lives thinking it's about us when you have put us here for such a time as this, Lord, to make you known here in Montgomery and throughout the whole world. So, Lord, we ask for grace to be faithful, Lord. God, to look beyond ourselves to those you've put in our lives, Lord, whether they're co-workers or classmates or stranger you have crossed our path this week. Those aren't accidents, but you and your sovereign plan are arranging all these things, Lord, so that we can be your mouthpieces. Lord, help us see those opportunities and not walk by. Lord, give us boldness to not fear what people think, but to speak in love to those around us. And God, would you advance your kingdom as us, your children, simply seek to love you and be your mouthpiece this week. And God, we confess our flesh is weak. We cannot do this on our own. So we ask for grace upon grace upon grace this week, Lord, that you would change our heart affections. And we ask it so that you would get all the glory and we find the joy of being used by you. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing about the goodness of our Lord.